I had an idea that it might be the engines. 60 seconds. Then suddenly there came an indication. One of the instruments just went haywire. Welcome to the Curiosity Shire, where we uncover the stories behind ordinary people living extraordinary adventures. Our mission is to help you discover your own adventure, find the courage to pursue it, and ultimately live a life filled with purpose and satisfaction. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. Hey, it's Seth, host of the Curiosity Shire podcast. In this episode, we finish my conversation with Stefan Rasmussen as he recalls the events which made Scandinavian Airlines Flight 751 so infamous. In other words, baby kiss me. From a distance, it seems like it was just a fluke accident and Stefan stepped up to save 129 lives after both his engines shut down. However, digging deeper into the story reveals a much more troubling side to the incident. He doesn't consider himself a hero, he was simply doing his job. And if he had been informed about all the systems in place on the aircraft at the time, he never would have had to land in that field. In other words, I love you. If you haven't already, be sure and listen to part one of our conversation before listening to this episode. Also, I'd highly encourage you to watch the documentary titled Pilot Betrayed, created by National Geographic. It was this documentary, 10 years after the incident, which finally revealed to Stefan what actually went wrong on December 27, 1991. Since the incident, Stefan has never gone back to flying as a career. Instead, he became active in politics for a few years, published a couple books, and also enjoyed his lifelong passion for music. He has recorded several songs which you can listen to on Spotify, including Fly Me to the Moon by best-selling music artist Frank Sinatra. You are I long for all I worship and adore in the night up there uh, and, and went out and then I took the Oscar Yankee Kilo Golf Oscar SK751 and I started that and that changed my life forever. A flight of uh, less than four minutes but the longest flight in my life. I did my best and we succeeded but I found out that uh, I was only to start the next couple of years, the next decades of years, they were terrible, terrible. Because uh, some people, they, are, they have misunderstood something. I normally, I, I used to say, the dumbest people I have met are people who think that I act exactly like they do. First of all, my philosophy is that there are, we don't have, even we have some look alive, 
we don't have two exactly the same persons. Yeah. Because we have we have all have an evolution of our life which is different. <clears throat> I have a lot of I've made a lot of speeches about those things to make people understand that every person in the world is unique. Every person is unique. And I start by telling them to say, here, I have a cup. I pick one of the, uh, in the audience, I said, should we try to tell the people here uh, surrounding us if we are having the same cup? The, the, uh, the guy or the, the girl in the audience knock his head and I say, okay, can we agree we both have a cup with a holding? Yes. And we both have a cup with a, a bottom. So actually we have the same cup. But I bet you, if I ask you on what side the, the grab is, then you will tell me it's on the left side. And then it's not my cup because my grab is on the right side. And that's a proof of that every people, every person, even in the same situation, they are sitting in different positions, so they're seeing things different. Mm. And when we don't have the same reference, exactly the same reference, it's when it go into the little brain up here below the hair, then it puts together which make no people alike. That's simple. That's why the most important word in the world is mutual respect. Yes. You have to respect me for being the only one. And I'll respect you for being the only one. That means that if you have an opinion, I have to respect it. But when I say that, you have to respect that I have an opinion. Thereby, we can discuss, we can give each other things because you have seen things I haven't seen. So together, and then we're back to the small wheels, we can make wonders. We can even make miracles. So simple is life. Yeah. <laughs> it's so simple, and yet so many people don't get it. Even I, I forget sometimes, you know, we get these preconceptions and we expect other people to be the same as us. And we're like, why are they doing that? Different cultures, different, different way, different places I've ever seen it, different uh, climates. Uh, it's a lot of things which make thinking different. Yeah. Mutual respect. Yeah. If you don't mind, I want to back up. And so the incident that happened with Scandinavian Flight 751, um, it's been well documented. Uh, there's been documentaries about it. I've watched several videos about it. Our listener, they could go and and I highly encourage them to look it up. And I think you recommended Pilot Betrayed um, by National Geographic as kind of yes. the most comprehensive aspect of that story. But if you don't mind, just spend a couple minutes tell us a little bit about uh, what happened from your perspective because a lot of the videos I've watched are you know highly edited and um, I just want to hear your thoughts of what transpired on that day during that four minute flight. Uh, first of all I have to tell the listeners that in SAS we have as one of the first companies in the world we have what we call 
a philosophy that both pilots, they are flying-wise equal. Mm. That means that if there's a captain, he got four stripes, and he's the one who has responsibility. Uh, the co-pilot, he, he, he doesn't have that many stripes, but he can have because a captain, another colored captain, can also be co-pilot. So we have the piloting pilot, that's a guy who fly the aircraft, and their safety pilot. Every flight SAS have done in the past is so that they change, they're interchangeable. They stay in the seat, but if they go from A to B, it could be with the co-pilot as piloting pilot and the captain as safety pilot. And when they fly back, it's a captain who is a piloting pilot. Hmm. So that's a way we have thought that we can heighten this flight safety by being sure that everybody know that they can fly the aircraft because it happens, especially with older captains, that they got a stroke. And then if you are one of those companies which some of the, the old Soviet Union, where the captain, Kaptansky, he was taking off the aircraft when it was in the air, the co-pilot, he was flying it on autopilot and so, and when it come to the destination, the captain took it over again, and then uh, he landed the aircraft. And that went wrong because <clears throat> if the captain, he had a bad day, <laughs> a stroke or something like that, the co-pilot, he also got a bad day because he was just uh, shitting his trousers because he's never tried to land an aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that's why uh, that philosophy have ruled in SAS since way back. Yeah, we also uh, were among the first in aviation who flying a two pilot cockpit. Today it's uh, standard. It's standard. Yeah. Know? So back to the flight, the twenty seventh of December, <clears throat> standard procedure. We were about ten thousand pilots. Um, half of them captain, half of them co-pilots. We changed. We had a we had a nine days week, five working days, four days off, and those five days you were not flying with the same crew. That was also a safety thought that if you change, they they can only stick to the rules. Yeah, they they don't uh, get. Uh, so confident that they forget to uh, read the checklist, forget to so and so. So in all ways, and that that what what really pleased me by SAS were that they have thought about those things in the favor of flight safety. So that's the scenario. I come out there, I go to the check-in, and I see. Who's, who, am I, who am I going to fly with today? You're going to fly with a, a young uh, sweet, Ulf Sedermark. Okay, but uh, he's a little late. Oh, okay. So I start to make the planning and everything. And uh, he came and he was sorry because the weather was bad. It was really icy and so on. So I said, it doesn't matter. I have made everything. Let's go down and say hello to our cabin crew. 
And uh, I always used to do that. We did that. We went out to the aircraft. He went over the cockpit to make the the um, the checklist before starting checklist and so. And I had my usually walk around. Uh, it was not mandatory to make walk around in uh, in the SAS, but I always done it myself. And I liked uh, the Swiss Air where I was. Borrowed out too because they it was mandatory there. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to come out and and, uh, and talk to the mechanic, talk to the to the, the loading people, and so and so. You got a lot of information there. Yeah, uh, the loading people there the first to know if there's something problem with the luggage and so. And even we were the exact aircraft in the world. I always said, uh, let's not be so punctuality eager uh, that that we are going on time but without their their their, their luggage yeah because the next time we are going on time without passengers and luggage and there's no money in that <laughs> so you have to yeah, that's 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 why you have responsibility that, that's what make the captain the captaincy is that he's the leader of the crew He's a leader, a scene of action, and he should, should do that. So everything worked perfect and so, and I went up, and when I went up, well, up the passenger were not aboard yet, I went down and looked in the cabin, see if there was anything, and so and so and so. Everything's fine. I have talked to the technician. He said, we're going to de-ice it. I have ordered a doubled portion, and we're going to do that. Great. Good, good. My co-pilot, he was busy doing a checklist. No problem with that. I trusted him. So I just stayed in the door and said to the passengers who just started walking on board now, good morning, welcome on board. Hope you had a nice Christmas. Find your seat. So, so I did. Talking to people is not uh, for the show. It is because the next moment you might, nobody hope ever, but you might stay in a situation where you should be the man who controlling some of the highest ranking businessman, politician, or whatever. Because you're in charge as captain on an aircraft. As soon as you have left the gate, this world is yours. You are you have even more power than the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't misuse it. Yeah. But be aware, be aware of it. It's your responsibility. And by talking to people and they have sympathy, they are a lot easier to control if you get into it. So my flights, safety-wise, started long before, and I tried to to learn people that that's the way we should we should think. Make it short. Everything on board. We were a little late because this is DI's a little more. I know that passengers they get nervous when time is. Oh, we should have been and so on, so on, so on. So I grabbed the, their phone and said. It's me again, your captain. 
As you can see, I have brought my favorite crew with me today. It's my favorite students. I have 30,000 in the company here, but we only had five with us today. <laughs> if you're looking at the watch, you see we should actually have departed. But don't worry, we are de-icing. We have to clean the aircraft a little bit. And um, the most important thing will be in Copenhagen, maybe even before time. Because there's a lot of good winds down over Sweden, and um, it's going to be a fairly uh, short flight. My goodness, I didn't predict, uh, and I didn't look, look into the future, but it became a short flight. But at that time, no problem. People, they were they were lowering the, the newspapers. They were looking, they were giving that accepting knock, which I like. And I sailed out and I talked to the technician. He, Captain Rasmussen, we have de-iced the aircraft. Great. And I, when he said that, everything should be perfect. Due to uh, commercial thinking, you know, commercial uh, calculation, you are cutting down all places. And we have done that. We have, instead of having two technicians out, we have only one. And the people who are taking care of the ground safety, they have said, if you're only one, you're not allowed to go up on the wing. So if you're DI, you should inspect by DI, See, what happened in the situation? The situation is that the aircraft had been in Switzerland the day before. It had flown three and a half, four hours up in minus 55 degrees. It has because we have a constant calculation on where the fuel is, is lowest price. They have found out that, okay, we, we, we make economy fuel. That means that we are buying so much fuel in, in Switzerland that we don't have to, uh, to to fill it up or, or refuel it in Stockholm where the fuel is, is higher price. Mm. So it landed with uh, six, five and a half, six, seven and a half tons of fuel who have been up in, in uh, minus 55. It was very cold fuel and it's out in the wing, it bladder tanks and so. So far so good, but the weather, the weather during the night, when they left the aircraft, was drizzle, very fine drizzle, small drops. And when they're falling in a specific speed, with a specific size and so, it might make clear ice. Totally clear ice, which is clear as glass. Then later in the morning, Temperature a little lower, it drizzled went into snow, and it was powdered snow over the over the aircraft. So when they sprayed off, and he looked with his eyes, he saw a clean wing. But on top of the, there was one and a half, almost two inch of clear eyes. Nobody knew. I have got the message. It's clear. I have used twice on it. Fantastic. We put the key in, turned it around, woke it up, backed out, drove out. I even 
when we draw out, forced to go 90 degrees on small snowbars where they have pushed away the snow in order not to run the wheels in the snow so you get uh, snow into the and get the, the wheels out of the bounds. Out on the runway 08, Scandinavian 751. I was in pilot and pilot. My co-pilot, he was a safety pilot. He did the communication. Are you ready for takeoff? We're ready for takeoff. Bang, check powers, everything. Run. Accelerate. We run. Rotate. Up. Seven seconds after takeoff, I heard sound. What in the hell was that? Sounded like something I heard before. If they haven't locked the auxiliary power latch, it could make an aerodynamic sound like this. I have tried that before. So there you have this scenario. You come into a situation, you make an observation, you go into your memory, your experience, you found a reason, and you're happy. But the sound changed again to another thing. It could be that snow, so you have shimmy in your nose wheel, and another one. But then again, the brain is very smart. Not only mine, but to most people, if they learn to use it. <laughs> it say it made a conclusion. You have heard those three things, but you never heard it in that way and that order. Alert, adrenaline, you get suspicious. You look all over. Nothing, nothing, everything is fine. You're climbing, you're accelerating and everything. Until 22 seconds after takeoff. Whoa! A big, big sound. And a jaw in the aircraft. We are living in a time where we know that you are target for bombing and throw in aviation. So the first thing when you hear such a big sound, you think about, is it a bomb and where? So there's two things you are very interested to get confirmed. Do we have a hole in the aircraft? Do we have control of the aircraft? Holding the aircraft, the first thing you can see that's look up at your small cabin pressure build up. If that doesn't build up, you got a hole. Take the, the steering wheels or and shake them a little bit. If there's respond, you got controls. No indication on instruments. Those roars, those big came every second, one and a half second, two seconds. What was it? I didn't have any idea. No indication. I smelled. Is it birds we have run into? No, because normally when we run into birds, seagulls or something, it have a tendency to smell like the grilled, grilled chicken at the barbecue shop. Is it a, a tire who were ripped up? No, because it has a tendency to smell like burnt rubber. First, when we came into 
the uh, 60 sec, uh, the uh, one minute of the, the of the total flight. I'm take I'm talking total flight here. Then I got an indication. But before that, I tried to provoke, to find out, and analyze. I had an idea that it might be the engines. It might be the right engine. So I took the the power, the throttle back, to to establish the incoming airflow and the and the fuel in order to, if it was a stall, to take it out of that. A stall in the engine. Stall in the engine. Civil engines, they don't normally do that. Jet aircraft, they do it a lot of time when you are making dog shits, uh, dog fights and so on. Hmm. So you know that. But it looks like that when I took off the engine, it increased the power. I haven't seen that before. You are right on the tendency to think this is a nightmare. And in within the next minute, you are falling out of the bed and you are you're hitting the, the floor beside of it. And, and you are pissed in your trousers. But that was reality. And that's my word to every aviator or every people, every human being. Every, every adventure, when you are in a situation where it's more than reality, when it's unlike, when it's more like a nightmare, you have to deal it like it was a real thing. Because the difference in the dream and in the real world is you're in control. You're not in a dream, you're not in control. Mm. In real life, you're the one who having the control. You're the one who can go left or right or sit down or go back. You're the captain in your own life. 60 seconds, then suddenly there came an indication of an engine. One of the instruments just went haywire, but it was on the left engine. That really pissed me off because I was thinking it was on the right. So what do we do? You put that and you start the same procedure. But I didn't get that far because 15 seconds after, we have now flown totally 75 seconds. One engine died. <laughs> that was the right one. You thought it was the right? You see, you have indication on the left. You work on the left and now the right down. Two seconds after the left one went die. And you're on one kilometer's height, and you're sitting there like a piano and a rock in midair, almost one kilometer up, 3,000 feet, in the clouds, everything. What do you have to do? There's only one thing, go down to basic aircraft, basic flying, bend over, glide down, if you can have a speed, so you so you uh, uh, create lift on your wings, you can control the aircraft, and control is the main reason. That's why I always say, keep it simple, kiss it, keep it simple, stupid. First thing, 
analyze situation. When you analyze the situation, you hold it up to your experience and so, and if that re if if that's enough, you take the proper action. If you can take the proper action, maintain control. I like it. Analyze, take appropriate action, and maintain control. I actually have to 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 make it in another order, but that's the three main reason, because mm-hmm. the main priority. First thing, maintain control. Yeah. Analyze situation. Take proper action. If you can't analyze the situation, maintain control. If you can't take proper action, maintain control. And in an aircraft, which is 55 tons, and you have a speed at that time, almost 400 kilometers an hour, a little bit above, bend it over it got potential energy and you can keep it on. That's where I got my recognitions from Aviation Week and Space Technology, my Laurels Award, whatever. That's because I kept control of the aircraft and I goddamn flew that aircraft as a glider. I have from the bend over and down to touchdown never been more than 5% from the store. Wow. And that's a region you 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 don't use in civil aviation. But I learned it in the Air Force. I've been instructor pilot, I've been show pilot, and I've really taken aircraft out in the envelope so close that I have learned from stiff hair in the neck and sweat on the breast. That's what I say about education of modern pilot today. Don't let it be so commercialized that they don't have some fundraise where they can go out and test things out in the corner. I know that's on those rides that pilots, they kill themselves, but also know that that's where they learn the most. We glided down the year. Scenario is terrible because you have responsibility of the captain. I have managed to give the message and everything. Unfortunately, I always flew with open cockpit door. So I could just shout out, take care of passengers, prepare for merchant landing, and so on. When we come down, we popped out about 200 meters above the ground, 600 feet. You popped out of the clouds? Out of the bottom of the cloud, the cloud base. Yeah. There was a little spot, little or to the left, and I swung out there. I had a colleague in the, in the cockpit. He was shouting, he was doing so. I didn't have time to talk to him. He, I gave him an order when he came out. I was to start the APU. Because my co-pilot, he was at the beginning of the single engine checklist. If we should manage to, to get one engine off. We also had ex- uh, experienced a fire before he came out, my colleague, where we had taken that. So we only have, if we could relight, one engine. That mm-hmm. gives single engine operation. He was in back. I knew the, the last point of that checklist was taking the APU, auxiliary power. 
I broke up the SID, the instrument departure, to make a straight level and go out. And we popped out and we had that little thing. Experience from my flight up in Fairy Island with all the different kind of aircraft, I mixed them together and I managed to land the damn thing out on the forest meadow. I stopped it on a shorter distance than between the goals on a, on a, on a soccer field. Wow. We have a deacceleration which should actually crush all of us. But since we, my cabin, my excellent cabin, they have taken the passengers and ordered them to sit, we minimized. So everybody in that team, they worked perfect that day. And I'm grateful for that. That's why I can't understand and will never understand why they should be after so much bullshit. So much bullshit. People who are actually sitting in the commission of the Havary, the, uh, the uh, investigation commission, high estimated people who tried to cover in or to get rid of the responsibility. Yeah. Did, they serve, did they serve the flight safety? No. They tried to take off all that bullshit piss about the hero captain. Whenever I met the press, whenever I met anybody, and they said hero, I said, wait a minute. I was on work and I did my best. And they started a lot of things. They made a troll army trying to destroy me. And they destroyed some things with my kid, my wife, and even myself. I have PSTD, not by the accident, but by all the things after work. I was scared wherever, whenever I saw a newspaper, whenever I saw her, uh, uh, heard a telephone and so on, I was scared because what have they now found out? And that's what woke up National Geographic. They called me up one day, 10 years after the accident, and they said, are you the, the captain? And so if you mean by the captain, the uh, Rasmussen who who were in command of SK-7151, you're right. What can I help you with? If we would like to dig a little bit down into the investigation of the uh, SK-751. And I said to them, I think there have been a lot of, a, a lot of people have done that. What can you change of that? Yeah, we have found out that uh, there's a little part in the investigation which is not really having the same value as it should have. So, what is that? Yeah, that's the ATR system. ATR system stands for Automatic Trust Restoration System. I said to them, so, have you talked with SAS about that, Scandinavian Airlines system about that? Yes, we have, but they won't talk with us. And then I said to him, then you won't get any way with that. And he got a little angry at me and said, Captain Rasmussen, do you know who we are? 
I said, yes, I know what National Geographic stands for. I know your professionality and you can have free access to all my information and I have it all. So on that, they started out that documentary shown on, on uh, May Day or National Geographic or wherever called Pilot Betrayed. And I'm really happy about that. And it looked like that when that movie was shown all over the world and have and still are showing all over the world, those Dunkoff, they squeezed a little bit down, mm. but they're not dead now yet. Um, only months ago, I heard a new rumor, but uh, we have shut them down all of them. I don't go out and debate it is very, very seldom that I go so close as we do right here, Seth. Yeah. I took the decision by the 30 year of the accident. I wrote a book during my, my last book called Don't Ask Me. That's the title. Don't Ask Me. It's written in Danish. But there I wrote a lot of things about nature and my my pleasure or my joy of, of of nature and poetry and so but I wrote a final chapter where I put up all the questions of those questions the press and all interested they haven't asked mm. and I finish up with after all those why 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 I finish up there's a lot of unanswered question in this case but one thing is sure don't ask me <laughs> you can ask those who were i don't know what was driving them but having a goal of pushing this one under the carpet yeah and i think it was interesting because when i was when i was uh hearing the story and first finding out about what happened with you and hearing about the ATR system, it reminded me of the 737 MAX 8. Exactly. Yeah. It's, there's so many alikes in the 737 MAX. And there's another thing way back where we have an accident with one of our marine vessels where a high-qualified, high-estimated commander, he, in an in a exercise, misfired a, a missile, and it could have made a big hole in Copenhagen. But fortunately, it only uh, uh, removed uh, a couple of, of uh, cabins up in the area. But the, 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 the way they acted were exactly the same as mm. my accidents as 737 and i bet you in a lot of other it is a culture who is existing in the industry of aviation which is not and i say n o t not making any favor for fly safety yeah it should be stopped and somebody they have to come out and face that 
Yeah, because it's easier to to talk about you as the hero pilot who did an incredible deed instead of all the safety issues that built up and put you in a very stressful situation. It was a tough day. (laughs) Yeah, but amazingly, you landed the aircraft and nobody died, which is incredible. It's a... It's a it's a it's a good thing. It's a we are, we are we are not that many in the class. Uh, Solenberger and I, yeah. Uh, I I have never met Solenberger, but I have heard from colleagues uh, in United States Air Force, my my my, uh, my good old friends, which I told you have still. I have heard that that we we are in a way of thinking and there uh, and and so uh, uh, a lot of lookalike. You don't know it, uh, you know. We have a, a Danish philosophy uh, philosopher uh, called Søren Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, and he said that life is full of incidents, but it is not an incident the way the incidents incidentally are coming. And who know? I don't know. I have seen uh, the movies. Uh, Scully, and um, I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant, mate. Uh, I, w- I was maybe one of the, those who could really see how fantastic uh, the actor... Um, Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, he was when he was standing there and thinking, rethinking it. Could I have done anything? Could I, could I, could I, could I? And um, it has been a, um, a wish for me, if it was possible, to have a, a two-hand talk with Solenberger. No press, no sep, no, no. But uh, I think we have something. Uh, and maybe even we won't meet each other so by your podcast, by the mm-hmm. those things Sonnenberg is saying, maybe we can push a little bit to that culture, so uh, so it's get a better world and get even more safe to fly uh, in the sky. It is a wonderful place to be, and uh, it should be the way we in a global world uh, make safe transportation around the more we learn about each other the better we understand each other and respect each other yeah i agree as a wrap-up question have you been flying since (laughs) as passenger yes yeah i i uh i had two years uh, before i had the accident report it was terrible uh, but uh, there, I decided if if the good Lord had a had an idea with that, what he wants to get up an aircraft again. I had uh, over fifteen thousand hours in the air. In the uh, air, I had over sixteen thousand uh, takeoff and landings. Uh, so I have tried the most, and I have so many other things of interest. So I uh, I took the chance. To a new life, I have now been more off flying on ground than I have been in aviation. I 
almost had 25 years. I now had 30 years after the accident. Wow. I took a, a challenge to go into uh, the parliament as politician. Uh, I went into a local community also as politician. But most of all, I, uh, I took my old love up and uh, I have my music. I have my music. I like to sing, I like to play, and uh, that's what I'm using most of my time. I have uh, made recording of uh, 99 cover tracks um, out on uh, all the streaming services and so. Stephen G. Rasmussen. And uh, I sing uh, mostly uh, backed up with three guys uh, who is living in England as an American, a Canadian, and an English. The American is a, a, a guitar player, bass, bass player. His name is, is Larry Van Creed. He was the first uh, bass guitar in ACDC, so he's oh, a wow. pretty good man. <laughs> and uh, Piero Tutti is a piano, piano player in Canada. He has been playing lead in on James Brown. And Phil Johnson is doing, doing good drums. They're making backing of me on, on a lot of those tracks. And then I've also made one which is a tribute to Frank Sinatra and the Crooners, where I've sung with their big band and um, made uh, a lot of those number uh, which was on the Vegas concert in uh, 63 uh, by Sinatra and the Blue Eye. Wow. And that's <laughs> awesome. That sounds like a whole... Uh, we could talk for another couple hours just about all those adventures. <laughs> it's, uh, that's every day someone, someone listens to me music, my music uh, all over the world. Yeah, I love it. Well, Stefan, thank you so much for taking this time to share your story and I'm just inspired to hear more about your life and kind of the philosophies that have driven you. And I know the best is yet to come. You have a lot more life to live, a lot more adventures to go on, and I'm excited to uh, see all that as it happens. And I'll definitely go listen to you on Spotify as well. <laughs> That's great. It's been a pleasure to be with you, Seth. And uh, you know, when you addressed me, I had to ask my chief, as my wife, almost 50 years, and uh, she has been my uh, my good helper, and you were locked in. And I'm I'm after this interview. I'm happy I did that. Have a good life. Thank you for visiting the Curiosity Shire and listening to today's conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend so they can be a part of this community as well. Music for this episode was produced by John Bentley, Grand Mercy, and Stefan Rasmussen. I'm your host, Seth Sutherland, wishing you all the best until we see you again here in the Curiosity Shire. <laughs>